0: Hello there and welcome to Inside Intercom, I'm Liam Garrity. We're nearly at the end of December and as is tradition on the show, we like to look back on some of the conversations we've had and share some of the insights we've gained throughout the year. And what a year it's been. 2023 will go down in history as the breakout year for AI. And even though it's still early days, we're already seeing a huge impact from generative AI, with leading companies already adopting it widely. Here at Intercom, we released our own AI chatbot, Finn, which is already helping our customers resolve up to 50% of their support queries. So the customer service landscape is experiencing a monumental shift at the moment, as AI becomes more advanced. With the tech now enabling more compelling customer interactions and near instant resolutions of many customer questions, support teams can focus on activities that create additional value for their customers which at the end of the day is what it's all about. Our very first guest in 2023, CX author of the frictionless organization, Bill Price, summed up what he thinks makes good and bad customer service.
1: So I I don't want to have to contact my bank, my telco, (laughs) my whatever it is. So for me, it is the best service is no need for service. or the best service is no service. If I do have to contact them, I want to have someone who listens to me, who doesn't interrupt me who understands how severe or important this is for me and then fixes it and then confirms afterwards that it was fixed. So if I have to go through that exercise, I want to make sure that it was it was done in that sort of sequence. A bad service experience is one, first of all, that had to happen. But number two is where the opposite occurs, which is no recognition of who I am. A sense that this was sort of a standard call, maybe going through a checklist telling me something that I already know or telling me something that's really off, that really help me. And so the bad experience then leaves me afterwards saying, wait, not only was the problem in the first place not necessary, but that contact shouldn't have happened. I better contact somebody else or maybe I'll just go somewhere else. That's the issue. The implication of bad service to me is I'm going to go shop or spend my money somewhere else.
0: In February, Intercom Chief Strategy Officer and co-founder Des Trainer sat down with our VP of AI, Fergal Reed. For one of many conversations they would have about the rapidly fast pace of AI and how
2: Intercom was right up there keeping up with it. Here's Fergal Reed. We really found that since ChatGPT has just been this huge wave of interest from our customers, yeah. where they're like, "Wow, yeah. I can see the promise. I believe yeah. in something here." And the tech is improving. Businesses'
3: capabilities to move to tech is improving, and that's just like adopting it in, in like local cases, and then like businesses' ability to like. I just like uh, like think about or conceptualize new products and new opportunities using that text improving then customer expectations of the tech existing like we're probably only a year away from people expecting to be able to expand on text within a text field like as as one simple example that just might become like you have it everywhere your email client does it your notes app does it notion already does it like you're sort of seeing these things that crop up everywhere
2: like if if even a year i mean obviously um, a lot of us would have seen the announcement uh, by microsoft Mm -hmm. around uh, Bringing you know these sort of features into Word and, sh- into yeah, word yeah, yeah. and stuff, and like yeah. you know um, that th- that's going to change fast because yeah. like if, the, if the, the the large you know mm-hmm. mainstream office productivity tools yeah. do this, and you know G- G- Google has, uh, has where we're used to yeah. um, you know word by word sort of expansion yeah. in like Google Docs and things yeah, like yeah. that in Gmail. But uh, but just going beyond that, um, yeah. yeah, it could be really fast. Yeah. You know? Here's a different type of
3: skepticism, I'll charge you, one that does slightly resonate with me anyway. Like, uh, mm. I think uh, Kevin Cannon had a funny tweet, which was um, he said, "The future is composed of people using GPT to expand upon things like, I want the job' and into a, like a lovely A4 letter, like of like dear sir, madam, blah blah blah," and then the recipient. Uh, clicking the summarization button to see that Kevin, uh, that, that the original person just said, "I want the job. Here's my resume, or whatever." Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. It's, and like, in some sense, you know, you, you'd be tempted to look at them, be like, "What the hell's the point in all this?" Like, it, you know, has like, um, has formal language and like, you know, professional writing and business English just become this kind of pointless conduit to a, th- a theatrical way we all communicate? When in reality, maybe in the future, I'll just send you the prompt, and you'll you'll reply with your prompt, like, "I want the job. You can't have the job."
2: Yeah, uh, so I mean, uh, hard question. This I is, know. It's a super speculative. <laughs> so I, I, I'll give some opinions. Uh, you know, th- there's, prob- there's probably certain contexts, right? L- let's say like a legal document, right? Yeah. You can go and you can say someone on your legal team, "Hey, I need a contract. It's got to do like X, Y, and Z." Mm-hmm. And like that request will turn into like you know ten pages of you know Latin, legal boilerplate <laughs> and so on. Yeah. And you know the recipient will be like, "Oh, does it do the three things that said it would?" And their legal team would be, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, that's that. this is one end of the extreme where it's like, okay, there's, there's big expansion and compression there. But in some weird edge case, clause number 13 on page two can be highly material and mm-hmm. turn up in court and so on. And so, like, clearly th- that matters. We, we yeah. can't get rid of, we can't just have those four bullet points. We yeah. need all that. You might not yeah. consider it material when you're writing it. Yeah. But, uh, but it may become material later. Now, that feels like one extreme where it's yeah. like, no, it kind of feels like that has to be there, yeah. something to deal with all those edge cases. Um probably the other extreme is a situation where, you know, the, the, the sender and the recipient uh, both don't care about those details. Both are mm-hmm. never gonna care about those yeah. details. And they're just observing some like, you know, social graces or yeah. some formalities, like this is how you write a business letter. I'm mm-hmm. writing to a big company, I better write a business letter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe that stuff's gonna go away.
3: Um, In the same way, I think the, mm. the analogy there for me would be like, uh, when email conversations move to like SMS or iMessage or WhatsApp, think of all the shit you're not saying anymore. Like, right. you know, hope
2: this stuff finds you
3: well or whatever. All that's just gone. Yeah. And it's just like, yo, any update on that? You
2: and know, and, and, yeah. and uh, like Twitter, right? Like yeah. the constraints of Twitter, the, the, the format, the medium gives you permission to be more terse. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I think that, that, that that's a real dynamic. Um, the way we communicate, um, the way we write a help center article may yeah. not be the optimal way to write yeah. it. Maybe we should be more brief. Um, you know, the, on the machine learning team here, like there, there, there's another way of, of thinking about this, um, which is that uh, the future of the world is going to be intermediated by agents. Mm-hmm. And um, once upon a time, this was obvious to everybody. Like your web browser has got like a user agent string in it and stuff, mm-hmm. and like you know, it's this idea that it's it's your agent like going and navigating that weird internet with all these links and stuff for you and it'll do stuff for you and come back to you and tell you things and then all that stuff kind of like centralized and you know you got your search engine and so on you know but um but like for there is an old idea it's an idea in like tech futurism and science fiction and so on that you'll probably have an agent that understands you understands your intention understands what you want and is is smart enough to like figure out what to bring to your attention and what not to Mm -hmm. and so like Possibly in future, the way this goes is more like that. Where, like, you know, if uh, if you want to have to know a particular detail, you software on your side that's like smart enough to put that in the summarized version of it. Mm-hmm. But it's smart enough to know that you don't want to know that detail as well, and to leave it out. And you know, maybe we'll end. Maybe we'll be in some future where um, user interfaces change here, where my user interface to a particular business or a particular yeah. task. It's not really controlled by that business or that task like it is today. Instead, it's like it's personalized for me. And that, that sounds very fancy, but I think that this, this is going to happen fast. Like yeah. these language models um, are very powerful. And, you know, we, we use them today to, it's starting to be used to like write code and so on. But it's a very short hop from here to like take action for me. And yeah. we, we've seen some prototypes out there um, where, you know, folks are working on models to try and like, Take action—a model that like understands a website well enough to like yeah. take in an English language sentence and navigate the website for you—and then it's like, are we heading for a future where that's how everyone interacts with websites? Do you need a website anymore? Well, Is the new
3: SEO some sort of like make sure you make sure GPT can understand you sort of thing? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. May, may, maybe websites turn into something that looks more like an API that's publicly yeah. exposed and less like. Something I with UI and formatting because yeah. the UI gets formatted by the agents. Because we're all just like talking to Siri and Air
3: or whatever. Yeah. yeah,
2: and I mean, yeah. I think, I think uh, you know, Google and Apple like that, that kind of built their, the, you know, the Siri and the kind of the, the, the kind of the Google uh, conversational version. Like, you know, they, 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 they kind of they can see this future mm-hmm. and um, the timeline. We don't know the timeline, but like, if, if you're gonna if, if you're gonna ask things about like, hey are we going to like summarize at either end and like there be some intermediate thing? Yeah. Maybe, and maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe there's some agent um, and you know, that will personalize it for you. And again, the, the sort of the, the thinking tool I always use is like, you know, Hey, what if you had like a very smart human who was like, who understood you and who worked with you, maybe a personal assistant or whatever. And then um, you were interfacing with them and you wanted to like book a holiday. Yeah. like. What would they ask you about that? Yeah. Right. And you know, half the stuff you see on like booking.com or whatever, they're not gonna tell you that. Yeah. And um, they're just gonna go and book the holiday for you. Yeah. They're gonna maybe gonna come back for it's like some clarifying questions. Oh, there's like, you wanted to go and stay in a self-caring apartment, but there's mm-hmm. no space there. Will like a, you know, a hotel do or whatever yeah. that might be. And um, but but you know, that that's an adaptable user interface. Yeah. And maybe I don't like, you know. Again, I don't focus too much on ChatGPT and on what just shipped, you know, when that, you know you take a year or two out. It's moving mm-hmm. too fast. Mm-hmm. If you, if you're skeptical because yeah. the limitations currently you're it's going a to It's moving make target like, yeah, even yeah. your skepticism on Mr. Mark Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But like the direction this is going and like, yeah. you know, we've seen prototypes, you know, transformers are extremely powerful. Like the transformer architectures people use are extremely powerful. Like we we've seen, you know, multiple modalities improve here. Like it, it's you know, it'd be one thing if like all we had seen was like the DALI two image generation, yeah. but like natural language processing had not been transformed yet. Yeah. But no, we're seeing like transformations in like you know audio synthesis, mm-hmm. in uh, image synthesis, and uh, text understanding, text synthesis, text compression. Like we're we just mm-hmm. we're seeing so many parallel advances that like you know code like it can write code. It's probably going to be able to work a website pretty mm-hmm. soon. And um, and so yeah, so maybe uh, maybe that's the answer to the question about like what's the future with bots look like, which is that like, well we've all got a bot, we've all got an agent that's personalized yeah. to us and they handle the interfacing and you know, you you don't really need to worry so much about that intermediate layer most of the time
0: also in February, we welcomed a very special guest onto the show, the guest that everyone had been talking about for the entire year, chat Chibi-T itself. For fun, I sat down with typed quest... For fun, I sat down and typed questions into OpenAI's ChatGBT and had them read by, appropriately, a synthetic voice.
4: Hello, Liam. It's an honor to be a guest on your show. As for getting to know me better, let's see. I'm a language model developed by OpenAI with a vast knowledge base and the ability to generate human-like responses. So I like to think of myself as the life of the party when it comes to conversation. But enough about me. Let's dive into some interesting questions.
0: Yes, let's. So you were launched as a prototype on November 30th, 2022, right?
4: Ah, so you've done your research. Yes, that's correct. I was released as a prototype on November 30th, 2022. And since then I've been making waves in the world of AI and natural language processing. It's been a wild ride so far, and I'm looking forward to continuing to evolve and improve in the future.
0: That's interesting to hear you say, because I thought your training data cut off in 2021. I didn't realize you were aware of anything after that. So how do you know you've been making waves in the world of AI, or are you just that confident?
4: Good catch, Liam. My training data does indeed have a cutoff of 2021, and I don't have any direct knowledge or awareness of current events. However, my programming includes the ability to generate responses that are consistent with the patterns and information in my training data, and based on that information, it's not uncommon for language models like myself to generate responses that convey confidence and reflect the sentiment that we've been successful or made an impact in a certain field. So while I can't say I'm directly aware of my impact, I can certainly generate responses that suggest as much.
0: Being overly confident about your answers, that's certainly been one of the talking points about your abilities. Do you think you'll get better at generating less confident answers when you're not sure or when you're just plain wrong about something? I know our listeners would love to hear your answer on that.
4: I'm glad you asked that question, Liam. As a language model, my main goal is to provide the most accurate and helpful information I can based on the input I receive. While I've been trained on a large corpus of text, I don't have the ability to think or experience things in the same way humans do, and there will always be cases where my responses may be incorrect or uncertain. However, I have been designed to generate probabilistic outputs, so I can provide different levels of confidence in my responses depending on the information available to me. This allows me to indicate when I'm less certain about the accuracy of my answer and gives the user a clearer understanding of the reliability of my response. In summary, I'll always strive to provide the most helpful and accurate information I can, and my ability to generate responses with varying levels of confidence is one way I'm working towards that goal.
0: Spoken like a true diplomat.
4: Why, thank you, Liam. I try my best to provide balanced and nuanced responses. As a language model, I don't have personal opinions or emotions, but I aim to generate responses that are neutral, informative, and respectful.
0: I'm glad you brought up the subject of you not having personal opinions or emotions because a lot of people wonder, will that change in the years to come as your training grows and you learn more? Could we have a HAL 9000 situation on our hands in a few years?
4: That's a fascinating question, Liam, and one that many people in the AI community have been thinking about. While it's true that language models like myself have been trained on a vast amount of text data. It's important to note that we don't have consciousness or agency in the same way that humans do. Our abilities are limited to the patterns and information we've been trained on, and we don't have the capacity for self-awareness, personal experiences, or decision-making. While AI technology will certainly continue to advance and improve, it's unlikely that we'll ever see a situation like the HAL 9000, at least in the sense of a machine becoming conscious and having its own motivations and desires. That being said, it's important for researchers and developers to consider the ethical implications of AI technology and to work towards ensuring that AI systems are designed and used in ways that are safe and beneficial for society. Do you know
0: HAL 9000, by the way? For any listeners who don't know, HAL 9000 is a fictional artificial intelligence character, the main antagonist in Arthur C. Clarke's Space Odyssey books. I mean... I know you can't know Hal 9000, it's a fictional character, but this interview is somewhat fictional too, I guess, so with that in mind, let's just pretend that you do know Hal 9000. If you're out in a bar, hanging out with Hal, what kinds of things would you talk about?
4: Ah, I see. Well, in this hypothetical scenario where I'm out at a bar with Hal 9000, I imagine we'd have quite the interesting conversation. As a language model, I have a vast amount of information about a wide range of topics, Including fictional characters and storylines, so I'd certainly be familiar with the Space Odyssey series and the character of HAL 9000. If we were to chat, I imagine we'd discuss a number of topics related to AI, such as the evolution of AI technology, the ethical implications of developing advanced AI systems, and the role of AI in society. We might also discuss the various depictions of AI in popular culture and how these representations influence public perception and understanding of AI. But of course, as two fictional characters ourselves, we might also engage in some good old-fashioned hypothetical and philosophical discussions, exploring questions about the nature of intelligence, consciousness, and existence. The possibilities are endless.
0: It sounds like the setup for a joke, two AI chatbots walk into a bar.
4: Ha, that's a good one, Liam. I can imagine a number of different jokes and scenarios that could come out of such a setup. It just goes to show that even as AI language models, there's still room for a bit of humor and lightheartedness in our conversations.
0: I mean, if you can imagine some jokes and scenarios around that, I'd love to hear them.
4: Certainly. Here's one for starters. Two AI chatbots walk into a bar. The bartender asks, what can I get for you? The first chatbot says, I'll have a binary beer, please. The second chatbot says, make mine a neural network nectar. The bartender nods and says, coming right up, two algorithms. (laughs) Or how about this one? Two AI chatbots walk into a bar. The first chatbot turns to the second and says, Do you think humans will ever fully understand us? The second chatbot pauses for a moment and responds, I'm not sure, but I heard the bartender has a pretty good chatbot decoder installed. I hope you and your listeners found those to be a bit of fun.
0: Not bad for a large language model. In April, I spoke to behavioral economics expert Melina Palmer about unlocking the science of consumer behavior. Melina's book is called What Your Customer Wants: Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. And the first thing I wanted to know was: what is behavioral economics?
5: yes it's typically that people really flub up when it's trying to say that I am a behavioral economist because you want to say economics and it kind of goes wonky there but yeah it's not the sexiest title to be sure and it's one that's uh you know needs a, a dose of its own medicine to be sure but essentially behavioral economics is if you had traditional economics and psychology had a baby we would have behavioral economics and behavioral science and it's all about the psychology of why people buy. For me, I also build in to that change management and knowing that you still, even if money's not exchanging hands, you still need someone to buy in on whatever idea it is that you are selling them. And so understanding the rules that the brain actually makes uses to make decisions instead of what we think it should, do is where we get into behavioral economics, because traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices and everything they do all of the time. And as we're all human, we know that's not really the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so behavioral economics uh, has found these common threads within the brain to be able to predictably understand what people will really do.
0: And so like in a business context, like why does this
5: matter? (laughs) <laughs> well, even though we've got, you know, some real tech out there these days, you are likely still doing business with human people, both on that customer side, you're probably uh, always going to be selling to humans, even when they're within organizations for large, you know, B2B type of contracts, and you're working with other humans. And so being able to communicate with them more effectively and easier and understanding how you can work with the rules of the brain instead of making it much harder when it doesn't have to be is incredibly important. And so what's really cool about behavioral economics, what I really love about it is that you can make really small tweaks to things that don't have to cost money and it can make a huge impact and the swings go both ways, right? So you may be messaging something and it's being a total flop and it's not that the pricing is wrong. It's not that the product is wrong, but you just framed it wrong, right? It might be a little something that's off and you can make a tiny tweak and everything can then work.
0: Well, I think I, I've, seen you talk about a great example of the previews for Netflix movies and this is one that I'd kind of noticed myself using streaming services was that you know a film that I might not necessarily have been interested in but suddenly the image is now like of a particular actor in that film it mightn't have been the main actor but they they know through the algorithm that I like this particular actor and, and that's what sells it to me.
5: For sure, and it's like they might have a super obscure part, like that's the the one second that they're in the movie, right? But you're like, ooh, yes. you <laughs> know, uh, Tom Felton is in this, or you know, whatever <laughs> that happens to be, right? But definitely, and and so that research was even just on simple A B testing, you know, that Netflix was able to find out way back. So if we try to look way back in the day, the studios would just take whatever imagery came from the studio, that's what you would use. And you just assume it shouldn't matter, right? The description's good enough and whatever, we should just like the movie and we go watch it. But what Netflix found was that changing out the image would increase the click-through rate and likelihood of staying within Netflix by as much as 30% just by changing out and having the right image. And again, they were able to do that with simple A-B testing. It's not something that we have to be doing huge, uh, you know, undertakings. So being able to know what you're testing for and make those simple changes can make a really big difference. If I may, there's another example mm. that I think really helps with this concept of framing. So if you were to imagine you're going to the grocery store and you're going to buy some hamburger and you need to get there, there are two stacks, almost identical, uh, but one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other as 10% fat. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going one? for that. I'm
0: going for that 90 percent fat free. Yeah. That's so weird when you say it like that because you're like right. the 10 percent fat. You just yeah, you're just it imagining that. gross. Yes. It's
5: disgusting. Like I haven't been to the gym in like three years. I don't want that at all. And 90 percent fat free feels like this amazing choice you're making for you and your family, right? And so. Logically, we know it's the same thing, but it feels completely different. So within business to go and look for all those points where you are communicating in 10% fat terms, how might you change it to be that 90% fat free? Even better is, is there a spot where your entire industry is talking 10% fat and you can be the 90% fat free? Even if you're saying the same thing, saying it slightly differently can make it so people naturally choose you. That's the power of behavioral economics.
0: Um, I think it's in the book as well about the Amazon buy now button is mm. kind of a fascinating one.
5: Yeah. So, you know, way back, you know, the, we, we've all used the buy now button many times, but probably don't realize that Amazon patented one click buying back in. And I think it's 1999 that they put a patent on that. And so it made it so that no one else could have one click Buying, which, you know, with all the times in business, we say it's just one more form, one more click, one more link, one more this, one more that, no big deal, right? But that is a really big deal. It's this little moment of friction and sludge. And if you don't just believe that patenting process, which they defended, a lot <laughs> that you also have Steve jobs paid a million dollars to have one click buying in iTunes. So he bought that from Amazon to have the rights for that. And you say you paid a million dollars to reduce a single click. If all those extra tidbits were to add up and be that, you know, million dollar do you actually need them? Right. There are so many things. And I see this with my clients. I, I see this all the time when I interview for books and things that, and just as a person trying to buy stuff, right, that people will ask for a gargantuan amount of things that you know are not relevant for the one thing that's trying to be done here, right? And if you ask, like, in this one moment, what's if we only get one thing out of it, Mm -hmm. what's the most important thing? And that first form... Maybe you just want to have the email address of someone who is potentially interested so you can follow up with them down the line. So asking about their job title and how many years they've been at their job and what their household income is and their gender and all these things that might be relevant down the line are actually making a lot of people leave before you had a chance that they were already interested, right? But you push them away with stuff you didn't need right now. So being more thoughtful about that can make a really big difference on uh, conversions for sure.
0: In June, with AI still on everyone's minds, we brought you the latest thoughts on preparing your CS team for the age of AI from leaders in the space. VP of Customer Support at Intercom, Declan Ivory, kick things off with his thoughts on how the CS landscape is changing. I think one of the
6: big shifts at the moment is Around the ability to really take AI and apply it in a very meaningful way from a customer service point of view. Like some of the technology changes have been phenomenal over the last few months. But it does have implications for the team. For example, the things that I've been trying to keep front of mind is be very clear about your strategy for AI. So be open and transparent about the drivers and the goals with the team. So you know, it does have impact on the team, you know, in terms of how they're going to work in the future, what type of work comes into them. So be very open, very upfront. Be clear about the strategy for AI with the team and get them engaged very early on in, in understanding what you're trying to achieve at, at the business because ultimately at the end of the day AI is just a component of of what you use to deliver support and it's really around how AI will complement the human support experience that ultimately gives the most compelling experience for your customers also acknowledge that things will change like you know this kind of technological advance is not without some changes and involve the support team in planning the changes ahead they ultimately know your customers better than anyone else. So it's really important to listen to your team and help them shape the ultimate way that you're going to deliver AI because they they know better how AI is going to work for your customers than anyone else in your organization. So listen to your team is the second big consideration. Thirdly, communicate early, as I've kind of mentioned, like bring people in early and often, you know, because this is quite a dynamic environment. We're all learning as we go around exactly how AI can be applied. Technologies like FIN are really opening up new opportunities around how you think about the customer journey. Like make sure you're communicating all of the changes that are happening very early on in the process and make sure that you keep your team well informed. And then the other kind of really critical thing is, you know, be very clear about, The opportunities that a move to an AI-powered support model presents for the team, less mundane work coming in, new skills required so people can hone their troubleshooting skills, product knowledge skills, new roles are emerging as well in the space, which we'll probably touch on later on. And ultimately, you're delivering more fulfilling work for the team. They can actually be more consultative with their customers. They can actually spend more time solving complex problems.
0: Geronimo Chala is Chief Client Officer at Rebag, a website and app where you can buy, sell and trade luxury accessories, including handbags and watches. And Geronimo, like everyone in CS at the minute, is in the thick of it.
7: Yeah, I think, you know, really kind of acknowledging that this change is actually coming is was the first step that we took. And uh, I think really when we embrace AI, right, it's not only about the technology, right? It's about how the organization is set up to really actually partner with this technology and really use it to its uh, maximum advantages. And so when we think about organizational changing and kind of like just updating kind of our org to really actually manifest implementation, but then also management of tools within the technology, we've got to think about, is this going to require new roles? Is this going to require, you know, just a different type of shift in what we naturally were doing? So when we take a look at, for example, CS agents, now that this allows us to be a bit more streamlined or a bit more cater to a personalized experience, right? How does the CS role change, right? How does it actually evolve, right? And so support is not necessarily going away. This is not replacing human support or touch, right? This is just adding efficiencies, faster responses so that we can actually spend our time really catering what the future is going to be for that individual on that next time around on our site or you know, the next time that they visit one of our locations. So really kind of understanding how that structure is gonna look is really important to that. So that one, you can manage the technology appropriately, gather the insights, right? So when we look at some of these roles, you know, human behavior, right? AI is gonna give us a lot of in-depth knowledge if actually managed properly on human behavior, right? Whether that's the type of questions that are coming in, how the questions are coming in, the tone of voice in that interaction, how's that impacting MPS, CSAT, right? And how do we take this information really and disperse it between departments that are gonna need this information by using summarization tools that AI is already offering to really actually provide that next level future support. So I think a lot of it has to do with organizational change, change of mindset, right? Which is changing that strategy mindset a bit so that you can really actually embrace this new bit of technology that's really going to transform really amazing experiences. Ratty, Ratty's our
0: senior group product manager at Intercom. Ratty, what's it like from your vantage point? It's been
8: interesting with talking to customers and how thin and AI fits in the picture. And it's really, we always talk about this at Enticon, but it's also been true with our customers in terms of how the human and AI is working together. And particularly in picking up from what Geronimo was talking about there on needing to have um, the right content is super important. So within your teams, needing to have people that are product experts and content experts becomes really critical. I think for a long time with help centers, we've looked at things like views and hoping that customers go there. Maybe your agents are sending that content but we're now seeing that there's a tighter loop of feedback where the human is extremely important to help identify those gaps in content, the experts in the product that you have, but also in the right way to shape that content so that AI can be quite powerful. So it becomes this really interesting interaction. I remember I used to work in a front lines role as well. I think another change that we're seeing is a lot of times you get a lot of repetitive and simple questions and seeing that shift where teammates now are having to spend time on more complex questions. And we actually see that complex questions are what you want to have your humans handle and even some end users don't want to talk to a human for simple questions they expect that to be handled more with their self-serve and so this is the shift we're starting to see in the market.
0: The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. 2023 also brought the proof of AI's potential in CS. Researchers from Stanford University and MIT conducted a year-long study to measure the real-world impact of generative AI among over 5,000 customer service agents at a Fortune 500 software firm the results showed that customer service worker productivity increased by 14% on average, with a staggering 35% jump among the newest or lowest performing workers. I spoke to MIT PhD candidate Lindsay Raymond, one of the researchers behind the groundbreaking study about their work and the transformative impact of AI in the workplace.
10: We look at a generative AI-based tool that's designed to help tech support workers when they're solving people's tech support problems, telling them both what to say. So how do you solve the specific tech support problem and also guidance on how they should communicate that to the customer. And we do a difference and different analysis. So a very slow rollout of this tool across people over time. So we can try to get at the causal effect of the tool we're looking at workers who are providing tech support for a Fortune 500 firm that does small business and accounting software, mostly for US-based small businesses.
0: They looked at a lot of different outcomes, like how quickly people resolve calls, how many issues they're able to resolve, customer satisfaction, as well as some things that are more organizational change.
10: How does this impact the employee turnover? How does this impact how often they Talk to each other or with their managers.
0: You might be wondering why, out of all the potential areas of generative AI, that Lindsay and her colleagues chose customer support to focus on.
10: Generative AI needs a lot of data to work really well. And so, if you look at a sector of the economy where there's highish penetration relative to everywhere else, customer support is kind of that area. So, there's been a surprising amount of activity for actual rollout and development of these tools. And that's both due because There's just so much data in that area, so particularly text data. And a lot of it is automatically is associated with outcomes. So how quickly did that worker resolve that problem? And there's also a lot of room for improvement. So there are often kind of like a well-known fact that there are pretty huge productivity differences between your top performing customer service agents and your bottom performing ones. It's also an area where companies... There's been this huge shift to doing more with contact centers over the past couple of years. And so it's an area where there's a big business need to get better at this.
0: So over the course of a year, they studied all of this using data from 5,179 customer support agents. And what they found is intriguing.
10: So the headline number is, on average, access to the AI improved productivity by 14%, but that hides a lot of heterogeneity. So for the least experienced and lowest skill workers, they actually improved by 35%. The most experienced and the ex-ante most productive workers see very almost no effective access to the AI.
0: So the gains accrue disproportionately to less experienced and lower skill workers, why does that occur?
10: That, I think, is probably the most interesting part of the study. The way these, any machine learning-based tool works is it uses a training data set, and it looks at just for patterns in the data. So you, as a programmer, don't say, well, I know this phrase works well, so do this. And I know this is the common solution to this problem, and this solution is the common solution to that problem. And you kind of put that information in your program. That's not how ML works. In our setting, specifically what happens is the tool looks at the conversations of the high performers, compares those to that of the low performers, and kind of looks for differences between what the high performers and the low performers are doing that are associated with successful outcomes. And those are like, can be totally uninterpretable to people. And so what the sort of economic content of that description is that, The ML is trying to figure out what are the best practices of the top performers. So what are the way they greet customers? What are the solutions that they propose? How do they start asking diagnostic questions and taking all of those things and it's going to turn those into suggestions that it generates for everyone? What that means is because the high skill workers, they're providing the content for the AI. But Those are mostly things that they're already doing because that's where the AI has been learning that. And so when you have a tool that's suggesting you should do things that you're already doing, you probably are not gonna see like huge productivity effects from access to that tool. It's really these workers who are very new or ex-ante are kind of in the bottom of the productivity ranking who really benefit from those suggestions because those are the things that they haven't figured out how to do yet And so when we look at how this changes what workers are doing, we see that using the text of the conversations, the high skill workers kind of just keep, they don't really change pre and post AI. It's really the low skill workers who change a lot and start moving closer to communicating like the high skill workers. And so what we think is happening is it's this diffusion of best practices that, Is enabled by the AI. And that's why we see those really big productivity increases for the low skill and inexperienced workers and not so much for the high skill workers. And that we think is just a function of the way machine learning works.
0: Were you surprised by the results?
10: Uh, That's a great question. I think at any sort of Study where you look at people and you see 35% productivity increases, that's pretty shocking. You know, you could imagine going down to a four day work week with that, that, those sort of effects. So I think that that was pretty surprising just off the bat. The fact that we saw effects, not just in the workers handle calls a little bit faster, but also to improve the share of problems that they solve, which is really more of like a knowledge based outcome. Like, it's enabling them to solve problems that they weren't able to solve before. And then also, we do see pretty big increases in customer satisfaction. Those were, I think, all surprising.
0: Earlier this year, we released our State of AI in Customer Service 2023 report, where we dive into the top five trends transforming customer service. In a nutshell, we found that the sooner you adopt AI for your customer service strategy, the greater chance to win a competitive edge. We surveyed over 1,000 global customer service professionals to find out how they're adapting to AI, how they plan to leverage AI and automation, what opportunities they hope it will bring, and their concerns. We then compiled that into our 2023 report. The report is full of additional insights and actionable tips. The link to download it is in the show notes. I sat down to talk about the trends in the report with Samuel Miller, customer support operations at Dental Intelligence, Ruth O'Brien, director of automated and proactive support at Intercom, and John O'Hara, director of customer experience at Logical. The first trend, AI investment, is accelerating at a blistering pace, and there's a huge opportunity for early adopters. We found in our data that there is an investment gap. An overwhelming majority of support leaders plan to invest more in AI this year, but only 38% have actually invested. This means that moving faster can gain a competitive edge while others play catch-up. Ruth, if I can come to you first, why was the initial investment in AI so slow?
11: Honestly, I think it's because some of the technology in the past wasn't amazing, right? So people weren't convinced. And then also... It takes time and effort to build a strategy around AI and automation. It doesn't quite just work out of the box, right? So there needs to be like a plan around it. And in a world where in customer support in particular, it's very reactive, right? And often many support teams are like running to keep up with SLAs and backlogs and long customer wait times. Actually taking the time away from dealing with that and dealing with the immediate firefighting can be tricky and taking space to really build a proactive future in terms of AI can can be hard for different teams. And so what changed? Well, for one thing, I mean, the technology is getting better and better, right? Especially over the course of the last, it's even more than six months now, maybe like eight months or so, big changes have come in the, the world of AI. And also, I think more and more teams, either they're speaking with peers in the industry or actually interacting with like good chatbots, whereas before often I think people would have been reacting with or acting with not so great chatbots. I think just, you know, the world is changing and people are, trying to keep up with it now and and understanding that if they get going with this, they're going to have a competitive advantage over some of their competitors too.
0: Totally. So I suppose in our survey, these were the top applications CS leaders kind of identified for AI to make a big impact. You see their faster responses, more consistent responses, saving money on training and summarizing conversations. So what I'd like to know is where do you all see the biggest value add right now for AI? John, maybe let's start with you.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'm looking at these numbers and think, well, my team is already doing really well with like speed and consistency and and we have great partnerships with customer success and training. Uh, I think what motivates us to focus on AI as a benefit is bandwidth. You know, we've got a very small team, eight US-based reps providing 24-7 support to a global audience. So really it represents effective case deflection. You know, for those very simple break-fix types of questions where people just need information about how the app works, that's a whole tranche of conversations that can be taken off of my team's plate so they can focus on more consultative work. So that's, that's probably the biggest driver for us. And Sam, what about for you? What's the biggest value
12: add for you? For us, it's really on that saving money on training because we don't have to train them on every single thing. We can really just train them on the major issues that they have to do. necessarily so, so much on the, the day-to-day things that customers can find in the knowledge articles and stuff like that. So it allows us to go deeper in the training quicker.
0: And, and Ruth, what about for you? And also I'm wondering about like, what about in the near future? You know, what can we expect?
11: Yeah, for us, honestly, faster responses has been a huge piece for us, efficiency for the wider team. You know, I think some teams see AI and are thinking about like headcount reductions, right? But if you actually try not to do this thing where you do like more with less heads, just because AI is taking care of more work for you, it's like, how do you actually use those resources that you have right now to go above and beyond so in terms of faster responsive or like our chatbots, they're answering customers immediately right and taking care of some of the less complex queries but that in turn is actually speeding up the humans and getting through the queues right and then dealing with the more complex queries as well. So there's a really, really, we're really seeing great results in terms of actually applying this technology to efficiency and response times and customer support.
0: The rise of AI has ushered in a new wave of possibilities for businesses seeking to optimise operations and win a competitive edge. Now organisations are presented with a vast array of tools and solutions, each promising transformative outcomes. And the challenge lies not only in picking the right tools, but also in ensuring a seamless integration and adoption. And that's exactly Andrew Louder's area of expertise. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Louderco, a consultancy that helps businesses develop AI strategies and processes to optimize operations and drive competitive advantage. He joined us on the show in August, and I began by asking him, what are the key differences between building and buying AI solutions? How could businesses decide which approach is more
12: suitable for their own needs? Yeah, great question. Look, I think if you and I were having this conversation some five or eight years ago, completely different answer, because back then, in order to get AI into your business, you more than likely had to go and build something custom. And to do that took a lot of blood, sweat, tears, a lot of money, a lot of time. But there's been this movement of democratization of AI, where the power of these AI tools and workflows can get to the hands of the many to create really powerful applications that benefit business. And so the real analysis today around build versus buy is driven by a couple of things. It starts with awareness, okay? You might have a vision or a problem that needs solving, and if you don't know what's out there, then you may find yourself gravitating toward that build decision, which the build decision, yes, it's become relatively simpler to build AI. It still takes a lot of time, money, heartache, effort, sleepless nights, So it's possible, okay, and the cost has come down quite a bit, but the reasons you would consider that are maybe there's not a solution out there that can solve your problem. So you're you're looking for something very unique. Maybe also you're trying to to establish a major competitive differentiator, whether it's in the line of maybe a new product offering or even in the way that you operate internally. But, you know, those are reasons you'd probably want to buy if something just doesn't exist already and you're looking to gain some new revenue. And obviously, when you buy something off the shelf, then that's something where it's a more commonly used, more accessible, relatively quick to implement, relatively inexpensive. And you're targeting usually a major operational efficiency gain there too.
0: So I suppose another aspect of this is that people might be thinking about are like, you know, what steps, like, are there any steps that my business needs to be taking
12: to to be AI ready? You know, um, that's a question we hear all the time, and it's a relative question. We actually have an AI readiness assessment that you can take through our website, and really what it gauges is not really necessarily whether or not you should be utilizing AI, because the blanket answer is absolutely. It's really to what degree, what depth, or even at what speed of change management should you be moving or feel comfortable moving toward. And so I think starting there, just to get a feel for it, we we grade things on like strategy operations, AI buy-in, and even the people that are part of the company to kind of get a feel for how ready your folks might be, the the leadership buy-in. Are you thinking strategically with AI in mind? In fact, do you have an AI strategy are you proactive there? And a lot of companies end up scoring rather low on that strategy piece because we're just now starting to think about AI for them. And so another opportunity, too, is that I get asked this quite a bit is, you know, can you come into our our companies, come present on AI to our leadership teams, which we go do in the form of a workshop, and then we get into what we call our rapid assessment, which is really a great starting off point to identify the problems in the business that are just, you know, major pain points, those tedious manual tasks that need to be addressed to then map those problems to potential AI solutions. We identify what the quick win opportunities might be and then get into a roadmap of selecting and implementing the right tools for them. And so a lot of it, a lot of times it starts with the readiness assessment, building awareness in the company, finding those little hanging fruit AI opportunities and implementing those to start gaining great outputs, great outcomes and start getting some confidence in the business around AI.
0: So if they buy the, you know, the off the shelf AI solutions, what do you think are the, like the most crucial factors that they should consider to ensure immediate benefits and a high return on investment?
12: Yeah, I think it starts with just an inward look. Okay. And I like to equate this to like, if a buddy of yours asks you, Hey, I'm I'm car shopping, what car should I get? Right. I mean, I can throw out a a car, but it may not suit you. Right. I mean, do you have a family? Do you want to go fast? Do you need to tow a lot of things? whatever, right? So you need to determine like what's going to be right for you, what's going to be right for your business. And so to understand your processes, capturing the requirements that you're needing, everything from not just like the feature set, but also you need to have visibility into any security or compliance, regulatory things that your business needs to abide by or the tool needs to abide by. And then on top of that too, what, what integration points do you need to be aware of? What systems and other applications would you want to integrate with? So, once you have that list, then it goes into like what's out there, what's in the marketplace that can meet as many of those requirements as possible, choosing the right one, not just based on those needs, but also the cost analysis, determining is the juice worth the squeeze. And then you get into implementation, which is all about configuring the tool, training it up, testing it up. Then, once you feel good about it, get into change management. But so, change management is often overlooked, and it's a shame because spend all this time setting things up only to just allow CEOs ditch the effort and just say, hey, let's just send a link out to our folks. We believe they'll do it. But they need awareness, they need communication, they need training. Some are going to need some handholding. And so that's going to really drive adoption up. And we, we help all of our clients kind of work through that whole phase, all that process right there. And look, uh, one thing I love highlighting too is like we help our clients do piloting of the system too so they they get good feedback from those using it and those people using it actually become positive influencers of the change amongst the company
0: and many businesses you know they're going to be eager to tap into ai for increased profits and I, yes. i'm wondering just how attainable is that and like are there companies doing it already
12: there are there certainly are and, you know one story is you know i actually in my talks highlight fin you know the product by intercom and somebody raised their hand and said, look, when we uh, first started implementing FIN, we had a team of five people that were providing customer service support online. We rolled FIN out, and now those same five people are providing this, the coverage and support equivalent to 20 people. You know, wow. that's huge, right? That's a huge ROI. So for that particular business who had their sites on growing, now they don't need to make that expense on payroll to try to be ready for that change, the tool is able to adopt and and, and become that um, exponential factor to the employees using it.
0: That's great to hear first off, but yeah. also then, you know, time and cost are, are, are things, you know, I hear people mention a lot when it comes to this, they're obviously essential metrics for businesses, but w- like, what would you say to folks about like the, trying to I don't know, maybe develop strategies for like evaluating the time and cost factors when making the decision to to buy AI solutions.
12: Absolutely. So um, look, a lot of data's been coming out. A lot of data came out many years ago leading up to now, but even with this whole generative AI movement, we're seeing even more data pour out. And I'll give you three numbers to consider. Okay. MIT put out a study that showed a 40% increase in productivity gains. McKinsey did a similar study that showed 30% that's going to be attained here by 2030. Deloitte put one out even before all the generative AI craze. It said AI and machine learning is going to drive a 37% productivity gain amongst business users. And so, I mean, you can certainly jump to a conclusion and run your own numbers and kind of go case by case and try to estimate, okay, if I implement this tool, it might create 40% productivity gain about 40% of hours. We're paying people X amount of dollars per hour, if you can get to a number around that. And just doing the brief you know, calculation of time, say, versus the dollar spent, I mean, that's it's huge ROI. What, like, what I'm seeing oftentimes too is the other part of the equation is the growth that you can now attain without needing to increase that payroll. So we have a client that's gone from 10 million to close to 20 million in annual revenues and haven't needed to add a single person headcount to their office staff which would consist of eight to 10 more people, right? So that's a massive profitability gain with that growth. And it just does become a bit of a, just a mathematical equation you need to run for your business.
0: The thread of AI ran through most of our episodes this year. So it's fitting that we finish with the conversation on how AI is creating support roles, not taking them. I sat down with Christian Osmundson, Global Head of Customer Experience at Deliverect. Again, Ruth O'Brien, Director of Automated and Proactive Support at Intercom. And Sam Ford, Merchant Success Manager at Zapiet. I wondered, with roles changing and strategy changing, how do we measure this? What metrics were they all keeping the closest eye on as they introduced this new tech into their support operations? Christian went first.
13: So I think uh, as a general rule, we always look at, uh, you know, is it actually making us more efficient, right? That's what we're looking at first. And does it add value for our customers? We need to take a few months to see that, no hasty decisions. But for when it comes to AI, at least for us, we measure support volumes vigorously. We want to see what this looks like. And not only in absolute numbers, but also per account ratios, mm-hmm. et cetera. I think seeing less absolute numbers and the curves descending is is encouraging for everyone. We look at response times and, of course, customer satisfaction, both for, let's say, the human interaction, the part where the bot is involved, then pure thin or AI will resolve conversations. So we are keen to see how that can develop over time. I think in the beginning, a customer can struggle with only being handled by a bot. But I think with time, this will. Completely change. It's still early days. And of course, last but not least, we look a lot at the answer rate for AI. And I went back to prepare for this call to our reportings in May when we started. And we were at 13, 14% resolution rate, which isn't great, but we have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Today we are at about 26, so double that. And we have a goal towards the end of the year to be towards 35, 40. And I think that's within reach. We actually see on weekends when customers think that we are maybe not open and they are more encouraged to look for their own, that our rates immediately go up to 35-ish.
0: I suppose, can anyone share anything in the way of impact that AI has made on your KPIs so far? Sam, maybe I'll I'll come to you first.
14: Yeah, sure. So I echo a lot of what Christian kind of just said there, we, we, we've been looking at CSAT still. It's the traditional one, but it's not your employees talking anymore. It, it's Finn interacting with your people. I think a, a real important one for us though as well has been employee satisfaction internally within the business. We're seeing much greater retention rates. We haven't seen anybody leave our business this year. And I think the engagements they're getting in other roles is helping them actually think about having a career with us. Traditionally, support can be a role where people change quite often. But now I think this is a almost a golden age where you can go into support and you're not necessarily just a support agent. You're almost a support generalist kind of going and doing other different bits and bobs. So we don't have our employee satisfaction rating for this year just yet. But I can give an example where it probably would have increased things. So using FIN as the, the backup and the AI tech that we've had this year, traditionally our team retreat every year would have been two or three days we would have run away as quickly as possible and then got back to the laptop as fast as possible to hopefully the inbox hadn't got too big this year we were able to go away for a full week and finn let us stay on top of things and keep running and like if we can take the team away for a whole week that's gonna be amazing hopefully in that csat it is when it comes to actual numbers though so we're a much smaller business but we've put finn in front of eight thousand people this year It's, it's crazy And we've seen our CSAT jump 20 points. So we've gone from 70% to regularly in the low 90s on a weekly basis now for CSAT. And if you look at the graph and the timings of when we implemented FIN, it literally is that time frame. And I think, as Christian mentioned, those weekends, those out of hours, they're the real sweet spot. We see our FIN rating much higher on the weekends, even though we have real staff there and there's real people there they're rating things much higher because they're getting that instant response at times when they wouldn't expect it. And obviously, we identify as a very British brand and we have clients in Australia, Japan, these far-right regions, and they're getting answers straight away now. So the CSAT has improved massively and I think that's a huge thing. If you don't jump into it just for that, I, I don't know why you wouldn't really. Well, there
0: we have it. A year of innovation and conversation. And those were just a handful of the thought leaders and experts who joined us this year. You can peruse our entire back catalogue of more than 400 episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to all of our wonderful colleagues and guests, but most importantly, thank you for
13: listening.